Good evening, everybody. I'm Ming, and today we have three readings. First reading is the, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 13, to chapter 53, verse 12, in the NIV version. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form mad beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand." Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We are all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. True, he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And true, the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spouse with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressions. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. The second reading is from the book of Mark, chapter 15, verses 33 to 38. NIV version. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachitani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's 
calling Elijah. Someone rain, ran, filled a sponge with the wine vinegar, put it on his staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the third reading for us today is from the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, NIV version. When they hoped they are insulted at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ming. Uh, my name's Alex. I'm one of the ministers here at St. Jude's. Uh, lovely to see you. And you. You might be wondering what's under this cloth. Well, here is uh, the placard of who Sam's going to vote for. And I'll just... We'll come back to that later. Well, we're doing a new series over the next five weeks. We're looking uh, at the cross. Uh, there are lots of different things we could explore about the cross and we're going to uh, start uh, today by looking at Jesus' death for sin and over the next few weeks we're going to cover different topics. Uh, most religions and ideologies, they have their visual symbols that kind of represent things that are significant to the history uh, and identity. Um, Islam has the crescent moon. Uh, Judaism has the star or the shield of David. Uh, Marxism has the hammer and the sickle, which represents our, our peasants and workers, their, their union together. And Christianity has the cross. Now, that's pretty surprising given what the cross represents. Death by crucifixion. Uh, in ancient times, crucifixion was the death that was reserved for the worst criminals, the worst of the worst. It was torture. It was cruel, but more than that, it was public humiliation. It was shameful. And so even for the Jews, the, the cross was awful. It was repugnant. They equated a crucifixion with being under God's curse. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 21. For anyone hung on a pole or a tree or a cross is under God's curse. And so the idea of God's king and his saviour ending his life on the cross was stupid. And so people who worshipped Jesus, they were ridiculed, made fun of. This is a copy of some ancient graffiti from around 200 AD. And there, in the words you've got, Alexemenos worships his God. There's a picture of Alexemenos worshipping his God crucified on a cross. And you can see uh, uh, Jesus has a donkey's head. Foolish. So why in God's name did Christians adopt the cross as, their, as the central symbol of Christianity? Well, it's because it was central to the, uh, the, the teaching of the apostles, the preaching of the apostles. 
Uh, Here's one example from the book of 1 Corinthians from the Apostle Paul. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to, to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The cross. And the reason that the cross was so important for Paul was because it was so essential to Jesus' own understanding of himself and what he came to do. You see, the the cross wasn't an accident, some unfortunate ending, some kind of dystopian plot twist. It was prophesied throughout the Old Testament scriptures and it shapes the whole gospel story. Uh, In John 3, uh, Jesus meets a man called Nicodemus and he says to him that he must be lifted up on the cross for the salvation of the world. Uh, Sort of halfway-ish through Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 51, uh, Jesus resolutely sets his face towards Jerusalem knowing exactly what awaited him there. And he willingly embraced it. And as he's approaching Jerusalem, he tells his disciples several times that when he gets there, his reign wouldn't start seated on a throne, but by hanging on a cross. And they couldn't believe him because they thought the idea was just foolish. However, though the cross was predicted, it wasn't inevitable. It was Jesus' deliberate choice. That's why when push comes to shove, Jesus refuses to ask the angels for rescue because he was determined to do what the scriptures had said. And so uh, John Stott writes this, although he, that's Jesus, knew he must die, it was not because he was the helpless victim of evil forces arrayed against him or of any inflexible fate decreed for him, but because he freely embraced the purpose of his father for the salvation of of sinners. The cross is important to Christians because it's important to who Jesus is. Well, to fully understand why the cross is so important, we need to understand why Jesus went to the cross. And to understand that, we need to understand the problem of sin. You might want to follow along in your outlines if you've got one. Uh, You might want to write some notes and help you orient yourself to where we are. So in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, uh, Jesus sums up God's purposes for humanity with two uh, great, simple commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. Straightforward and wonderful. Imagine a world where people did these all the time. Where, a world where everybody loved God and loved each other. Just imagine it for a second. No people starving or begging for food. No children being killed by missiles. No people in boats seeking or being denied asylum. No family violence refuges. No need for armies or police, no even need for locks on your doors, right? I sin, though, at its heart, is breaking these fundamental and good commands of God. And it's the reason suffering exists. 
Well, sin began in the garden with Adam and Eve and he's been part of every culture, every country and every person's life except for one since. And because of sin, God will judge each one of us. And that judgment is death. This is what Romans 6 verse 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. What you earn for your sin, just like you earn your wages, is death. That judgment is a physical death now and spiritual death in eternity, forever separated from God's blessing, forever under his judgment in hell. That's the punishment for sin. Now that often doesn't sit well with people. It's a hard truth, isn't it? How could a God who judges like this be good or loving? Maybe you've heard somebody uh, say that before. Well, I have two things to say in response to that. Uh, First one is, I would say someone who thinks that uh, hasn't fully grasped the majesty of God. He's the one true creator of all. He's completely holy and righteous and good. He deserves all our love and obedience. And when you consider who God is, sin is horrific. That's one thing. Second, I would say someone who thinks that hasn't understood how bad sin is and the consequences of God not judging it. Just have a think what sin does. It ruins the world. It ruins people. You probably personally know or have experienced or know people have experienced great sin and it makes you upset and angry, right? God should be angry at sin. But when faced with sin, God just can't be angry or upset. He needs to act. He needs to stop it. You see, if he doesn't do anything, it effectively means saying sin doesn't matter. It's like saying that really awful thing that happened, no big deal. And if God does nothing, it's also implicit permission for sin. It's like with my children, right? They can be doing something naughty, you know, and I say, stop it. And I can't be bothered getting off the couch to stop it. And they soon realise it. They're just going to keep going, right? Now, it's a trivial illustration. But just think, if God does nothing about sin, it's implicit permission for it. It's like saying to perpetrators, you can keep going because... I'm not doing anything about it. So fill your boots. Anger without action is just virtue signalling. But because we're all sinners and we'll all keep on sinning, the only way that sin ends is with death. That's the only way there will be a new creation without evil and suffering. By excluding its source in hell. Without God's judgment on sin, there are no boundaries on sin, no boundaries on evil, and it's with us forever. 
No perfect new creation. So when you actually think about it, punishing sin doesn't actually make God unloving. Actually, the opposite is true. If God doesn't punish sin, he isn't good or loving. And so God's judgment is good. That's why the Psalms celebrate God's judgment. But it's also bad news for us. Because though we're all victims of sin, we're all hurt by it, and we rightly desire justice, that's a good desire, we're actually also all perpetrators. We all hurt other people. We all disobey God. As Romans 3 verse 23 says, for we have all fallen, uh, we all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're the source of violence and corruption. We're the ones who see other people in need and cross to the other side of the road to pass by. And so God's judgment on sin isn't just judging people out there, it's judging us. Sometimes people ask the question, why why doesn't God just save everyone? Wouldn't that be great? That's not the real problem. The real problem is this. How can God possibly save anyone? Well, God loves us so much in ways we'll never fully comprehend. So he was determined that sin would not have the last word and that death would not be the full stop. And so out of his great love, God gave his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to save the world through his death on the cross. Whatever we say about the cross tonight and over the next few weeks, it's always first about God's love. Now, like a fine-cut diamond, there are many glittering facets to what the cross achieved. Jesus' victory over evil, cosmic restoration, forgiveness, freedom, the greatest example of sacrificial service. And we're going to explore some of those over the next few weeks. However, I think the scriptures teach the fundamental way uh, to understand the cross is through Jesus' work to save people from the punishment due their sin. It's fundamental and it's the thread that ties all the others together. Now this way of describing uh, the cross, what happened there, has a name. Uh, It's a mouthful, a penal substitutionary atonement, right? Drop that into your conversation this week. Uh, Here's one definition. Uh, At the cross, uh, God gave himself in the person of his son, to suffer instead of us punishment, oh sorry, the death, punishment and curse due to fallen humanity as the penalty for sin. Uh, you've got it in your outline, so you don't have to try and remember that. And so we're just going to step through this uh, a bit. Uh, firstly, Jesus' death is penal. Uh, penal just means involving punishment. You might have heard Australia early on was like a penal colony, That just meant it was uh, settled by uh, prisoners, people who were convicts. So penal just means involving punishment. Uh, Jesus' death was penal because on the cross, Jesus suffered the curse, the punishment, the penalty for sin, death. That's why it was penal. Uh, Jesus' death was 
substitutionary. Jesus died as our substitute. Uh, Jesus was completely sinless. He was innocent like the spotless lamb that was sacrificed in the Jewish temple. And like that lamb, Jesus died instead of us in our place as our substitute. Uh, Jesus is our substitute, but he's also our representative. Now, Adam, uh, when he was in the garden, was humanity's representative as well. When he sinned, because he was our representative, that affected all of us, right? Jesus' death was representative for us as well. It includes all of us. He's like an ambassador to the UN representing a country. Uh, uh, The ambassador makes decisions on behalf of the whole country. Jesus at the cross represents all humanity. That means he just dies not just for one person, but for all people. He's our substitute and our representative. And finally, Jesus' death was atoning. Because Jesus paid the penalty for sin, there is therefore now no condemnation, as Romans 8.1 says. No condemnation for those in Christ. Because Jesus made a mentor. He atoned for our sins. He makes forgiveness possible. Now we're going to do a little illustration over here to help us kind of remember it. Some people are visual learners. Okay. This is Jesus. You can tell by the label. And this is us. Down the back, just stay so see. Now, imagine here is sin and it kind of completely pollutes us. Right? And because of that sin, we're under God's judgment. You know, we deserve the penalty that sin brings. But Jesus stands as our substitute and our representative, right? And then when we're in him, look what happens to our sin. He takes the punishment. He takes the blame. He washes our sins away and makes forgiveness possible. There we go. That's what happens. Except, obviously, not with um, caress and, you know, stuff like that. Now, this way of understanding uh, the cross is not just a system made up uh, by theologians. It's actually woven right through the biblical story. And if we were going to kind of explore the great kind of depth of that, we'd be here for hours. So we're not going to do that. It kind of begins in the garden when God curses humanity uh, for sin, for the first sin. It continues in the Passover, uh, in the Exodus, and we're going to come back to that a bit later. It's at the centre of Israel's sacrificial system, particularly on the Day of Atonement. If you want to read about that, uh, look up Leviticus uh, 16. One of the key things that God was teaching Israel through the sacrificial system uh, was that people were sinful and the penalty for sin was death. That's why he needed a sacrifice, right? But in his mercy, God provided a way back into relationship with him. 
He provided animals that could be sacrificed or substituted in their place. They communicated right through the sacrificial system. It's a focus of Isaiah 53. You'll just notice it's like reading a story of Jesus' life when you read Isaiah 53. And it's right through the New Testament. There's a chance for you to go deeper. You can look at some of those passages later. But we're going to kind of focus on some of the Gospels. Uh, Jesus' own words and the events surrounding the cross itself. I'm going to start uh, with the night before Jesus died. Uh, Jesus uh, spent uh, his last meal, uh, his last evening with the apostles, eating the Passover meal in the upper room of a friend's house. Uh, This meal that he was eating, the Jews held it uh, annually to commemorate or remember uh, the events of the Exodus, but particularly the Passover. Uh, Some of you here might have heard the story before. Uh, Israel was slaves in Egypt. Uh, God sent a series of plagues uh, to try and persuade Pharaoh to release his people. He didn't. He ignored the first night, so God sent the tenth and the most terrible, uh, a plague to kill every firstborn in the house of Egypt. Uh, God warned Israel that this terrible judgment was coming. He said to his people, uh, slaughter an unblemished, a spotless, a perfect lamb, uh, eat it together and then get the blood and paint it on the doorposts. The plague then would pass over uh, the firstborn in that house where the blood was painted uh, and the house was spared. And so that night, the first Passover, the firstborn of their faithful Israelites uh, were, were protected, they were spared and Israel was set free. God's judgment was turned away by the blood of the lamb. Israel was saved, a lamb sacrificed in their place. That's what they're remembering when they celebrate the Passover meal. Well, that night in the upper room, Jesus teaches that this Passover was about to be fulfilled in him. This is from Matthew 26, verse 20, uh, Matthew 26, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. We through this Passover meal were a set of uh, rituals and a fixed liturgy, uh, words that they would say together. But here, Jesus actually changes the words. He says, Now the Passover is not about what happened in Egypt, it's about me, what's about to happen tomorrow. The bread stands for his body about to be given for them on the cross. Uh, Verse 27, Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying, Drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Again, as Jesus gets to this point in the meal, he changes the words. After God had brought his people out of Egypt, he made a covenant with them. He promised to be their God and they promised to love and obey him. That was how the relationship was set up. 
but Israel didn't do what they promised. They sinned. And so they were under God's judgment time and time again. And so God, through the prophet Jeremiah, in chapter 31, promised to make a new covenant with his people, a better covenant. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. At the centre of this new covenant was the forgiveness of sins. So as Jesus takes this cup and offers it to his disciples, his friends, in effect this is what he's saying. This promised new covenant that Jeremiah was talking about, that's coming, that's about to be established. And the sacrifice to seal and secure this covenant, to secure forgiveness, it's going to come through the shedding of my blood tomorrow. And it was a better covenant, not sealed with the blood of animals, which could never really take away sins, but sealed by the blood of Jesus. Not just for Israel, this covenant was promised to all people who called on Jesus' name. Well, from that night in the upper room, it's clear that Jesus' death was penal. He dies under God's judgment for sin. He's going to die as our substitute, his body given for us. And he sees his death is atoning, his blood shed for forgiveness. And so they finish the Passover meal. And then they go to the Mount of Olives, which is just east of Jerusalem. Uh, there's an olive grove there and uh, Jesus goes in. He leaves most of his disciples, uh, his followers behind and he takes his three closest companions, Peter, John and James. It's there that kind of Jesus gets really, really upset. He's visibly agitated and he says to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus then moves further into the garden. He falls to the ground and he prays to his father. He prays that this hour of darkness and dread might pass from him. He prays, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Jesus has spoken about this cup before, earlier, with his disciples. What Jesus had in mind is the cup spoken of by the prophets and in the Psalms. Here's an example. It is God who judges. In the hand of the Lord is a cup. He pours it out and all of the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. That's the cup Jesus is talking about. It's a cup. This cup is a symbol of bearing God's anger, his wrath, his righteous wrath against sin. And that's what Jesus is about to bear in all its horrific entirety at the cross. Have you ever wondered whether Jesus really understood your suffering? He does. He's been to the darkest places. 
he hears our tears. And so he prays, prostrate, sweat pouring like drops of blood falling to the ground. He prays he wouldn't be handed over to wrath, that he would not have to bear the sin of the world. Abba, Father, please take the cup away. Abba, Father, please find another way. And what's God's answer? Silence. Silence. Because there is no other way for the price to be paid. There is no other way for sin to be forgiven. So now Jesus has a choice. What will he do? Jesus knows exactly what he's facing and the choice before him is real. This is not pretend. What will Jesus choose? That's what he chooses. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus will drink the cup. He will bear the sins of the world. Was Jesus' prayer denied? At one level, look, it was. If anyone's going to tell you God's going to answer all your prayers in faith, anything that you want, just point them to this passage. But at a deeper level, it wasn't denied. Because at the heart of his prayer was not, take this cup away, the heart of his prayer was how it ended, yet not what I will, but what you will. We can pray to God for anything. And he wants us to. He wants to hear our prayers. But above all, prayer is not about getting what we want necessarily. It's about trust. Trust in the Lord of creation. Trust that he will work for our ultimate good even in ways we can't sometimes see or understand or in ways that maybe we don't even want. trust that he will work for our ultimate good in those circumstances. And so prayer isn't about me trying to control my circumstances. It's about me handing my circumstances over to God and trusting him for the outcome, whatever that may be and however hard that is. And sometimes that will be really, really hard. Not my will but yours be done. And God's will was that his son would die for the sins of the world. And ultimately that's what Jesus wanted to do. And so in this, Jesus and the Father are one. Sometimes people misunderstand what's going on here. The relationship between the Father and Son around the cross. And so they have a problem. They see God, the vengeful father, punishing his innocent and helpless son. 
Now, let me say, if that's what the cross is, we have a massive problem, right? It's a massive problem. But that's not how it is. Jesus is not a helpless child, and indeed he's not even just a man. He's God, God the Son. And as God the Son, he took the penalty due our sin on himself. And that's how forgiveness works. When we forgive someone, the consequences don't magically disappear. Somebody takes them and it's the person who forgives, right? They bear that on themselves. When you understand who Jesus really is, God the Son, when you understand God as Trinity, you see that the cross was not something that the Father did to Jesus. You see it as something that God did for us. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. God did it for us. Out of love, Jesus chose the cross and out of love, the Father willed it. And we will never comprehend how much it pained him to stay silent that day. But that's what he did. Out of his great love for us, he gave his one and only son. And so we come to Friday. Jesus, completely innocent, has been arrested The crowd shout for the murderer Barabbas to be released instead. And he is. And so the innocent Jesus is substituted for the guilty Barabbas. And Jesus is condemned to death. And the rulers sneer at him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. And the words are a cruel irony. They're meant to be insults, but they're the truth. He can't save himself and save others at the same time. And so he chooses to sacrifice himself to save the world. And then a great darkness comes over the land. This physical darkness represents a spiritual darkness that's enveloping Jesus then. And what's happening in that darkness, on that cross, is described a number of ways. Jesus is being crushed, punished. We heard it in Isaiah 53. He's under God's curse. He's giving his life as a ransom. He's taking away the sins of the world. He's enduring hell for us. And from that darkness, Jesus cries, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22.1. And to be forsaken here means to be suffering under God's wrath. And Jesus is expressing the absolute horror of this moment by quoting the only scripture that could really express it. And then finally, at last, Jesus says, it is finished. He breathes his last and gives up his spirit. Well, what's finished? Not just Jesus' life, though it is. Jesus has endured the full judgment of God. He secured complete forgiveness by his blood and he's paid for the sins of the world fully, finally and forever. Without God's judgment, there is no justice. There is no end to evil. 
the cross is God's no to sin. But it's a no that he takes on himself so he can say yes to us. And so at the cross we see God's justice, his holiness and his love and his mercy meet. Friends, the cross, is a, the cross is a glittering diamond with many facets and we've looked at one today. And we're going to explore many over the next few weeks but I just want to finish with one thing, one implication, assurance. Have you ever struggled to know God's love? To believe that not to believe not just that God loves people, or, but that he loves you. Have you ever struggled to know not just that Christ paid for sins, but that he paid for your sins, every single one of them? Have you ever struggled to know not just that Jesus forgives people, but that he forgives you? I've been a Christian minister for a while and if that is you, please know you're not alone. Lots of people struggle with that. And if that's you, please also know this. God knows all of us. Not just the presentable parts, the parts we post on social media, the the parts we let out in public, He knows all our flaws, our failures. He knows all the secret thoughts, our secret thoughts and desires. He knows every deep recess of our heart. He knows it all and he still went to the cross. There is no deed Christ hasn't paid for. There is no sin that he won't forgive. There is no person he won't love. And that's the proof. That's the proof. Our emotions are fickle. How we feel about our relationship with God, it goes up and it goes down. But the cross is his proof of his forever love for you. Shall we pray? Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross. Thank you, Father, for sending your own Son. Thank you, Jesus, for suffering our punishment, for suffering hell for us. Amen.